usually start with an apology, uh, but I am today. I'm wearing sandals. I don't usually wear sandals with uh, dress pants. But I competed yesterday in a Taekwondo uh, championship in Denver, and uh, I broke my toe. So it won't fit in my shoe. I tried this morning. Uh, the good news is I won. <laughs> the other guy tried desperately. He, uh, he injured this ankle by doing some illegal moves and broke this toe. And, uh, and I beat him, and I went on to the finals round, and I beat that guy too, so I actually won the whole match. So uh, <laughs> not bad for an old guy. So Rob has been threatening me all week with how he's going to uh, introduce me because we spent 10 days together, 12 days in India, and you get to know somebody really well. But I've reminded him that I have the last word, so he should be very careful of what he says. It's very good to be with you today. Thank you for the uh, opportunity to come and speak uh, this week and next week. I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, open up your word and we uh, try to look a little bit more deeply into who you are, we're going to find some things about who we are. And uh, Lord, that's one of the joys of walking with you is that uh, we find grace because uh, we are broken and we know that you love us. So help us as we look in your word, help us to understand it well and to look carefully and clearly. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. In uh, 1991, I was in Germany. We had just left and became missionaries, and we had gone through a two-year process of leaving the corporate world. I had come to the conclusion, and Nancy and I had, that God had made us for something different than accounting and auditing. And so we went through a process and raised our support, moved overseas as missionaries. And I was in Mannheim, Germany. And I went to uh, the military prison at Mannheim, Germany for uh, all of the U.S. forces in Europe at that time was in Mannheim. That's where the prison was. So I went there. They had been doing a Bible study, and they wanted to talk about continuing the Bible study. So I, uh, this was before my seminary days, so I had very little training. I didn't really know what I was doing, uh, but was courageous. So I went down to the military prison and, and led a short Bible study, and this, this young guy came up to me afterwards. Uh, I didn't even know his name. Still don't today. He walked up to me and he said, uh, I was raised in a Christian home. And I uh, have served the Lord most of my remembering years. I'm married, and I have a son. He's one years old. And uh, he said, when I first went overseas, I was stationed in Greece, and uh, I was lonely, and I didn't know what to do. And so I went with my unit into town. I've never drunk before, and uh, so I had a drink, and I got drunk, and we got in a fight, and I killed a Greek national. And he said, um, I've been going through the appeals process. At that time, the status of forces agreement, if the crime that you committed was a potential capital crime in America, then the countries in Europe would not allow that to be tried in the American court system because uh, most of the European countries do not hold to a capital process of, uh, of execution. So he said, I was tried in the Greek system. And he said, I found out yesterday that I lost my last appeal. I've been sentenced to a life in a Greek prison. And he said, uh, I didn't mean to kill that guy. And he said, I only get 15 minutes of visiting privileges a month. That's all I'm allowed. It's hard labor. I've already served some time in the prison, so I know that I won't grow old there. Um, I won't see my son grow up. 
What does that mean? What does all this mean? What's going to happen to me? Now, remember, I'm just a brand-new missionary. I've only been on the field one month with no training, and not in these areas. And underneath this question is a more a deeper question, and that is, what is God doing with me? He found himself in a situation that he wasn't expecting, didn't plan for, didn't even believe in, and yet there he was, sentenced to life in prison. And, um, and that, that, it's one of those very short conversations that impacts a life. I've used that story many times. I have uh, thought about it many times. And it really impacted my own journey to think about who the Lord is. I know that you are in transition. And some of you may be asking the same question. What does this mean for us to be in transition? What is the Lord doing with us? And I think if you dig down even deeper beneath that, there's a theological question. And when I use that term, a theological question, what I'm referring to is questions can be looked at from two different aspects. From our vantage point, that's the way we normally ask it, or from God's vantage point. That's a theological question. So the theological question that I think we should ask of what God is doing is in his life, um, what is he becoming? What was he going to become? through a lifetime in prison? And I think that's a great question for you. I think every church should ask you, to be honest with you, on a regular basis, but you're in the middle of transition. I think it's a great question. What are you, as a community, becoming in the Lord? And to start to answer that question, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians 4 with me. It's a fairly famous passage. Some of you probably know it well. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 17. The verse that I'm actually looking at is around verse 22 to 23. But I want to kind of set the context. This is Paul writing to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Ephesians is probably a circular letter, so it's meant to be sent around to all of the churches in the area. So the, this is where the present-day Turkey is. And this is what he says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now remember, these are Gentiles he's writing to. So this is kind of an interesting turn of phrase here. You should no longer live as the Gentiles do, even though you're Gentile. He's making a statement that however you're to think, it's to be different than what you used to think. And then he explains that. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self. Some of your translations may say old man. Some of them may say old person. Some of them may say old humanity. But to put off whatever this old self is, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self. Again, your translations may say old man, old person, old humanity, depending on which translation you use. But to put on this new, uh, to embrace this new, whatever that is, to be created like God in righteousness, true righteousness, and holiness. 
It's a very simple phrase. Throughout the history of the church since the Reformation, this has long been taught to refer to you as an individual. You as an individual are to somehow put off this old uh, nature and to embrace yourself with this new nature. And I think that's right. I think that's true. I just think it's missing the main point of the passage. I don't think it's primarily about you as an individual. I think it's talking about you as a community. And uh, let me defend that idea. This uh, statement to put on, verse 24, this new self, that same phrase, although it's translated in English a little differently, is used earlier in chapter 2. So let's back up to chapter 2. And look what happens in chapter 2. This is one of the more remarkable transitions in redemptive history, in the history of God's movement within the world. It's right here in chapter 2. Verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth, often in books when we read epistles from the New Testament, the you are the people in the, that he's writing to, and the I or the we are the authors. In this particular case, it's a little different. The you are the Gentiles, and the we are the Jews. So he's saying, formerly, remember that you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who are the so-called circumcision, those are the Jews. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Remember the Jews, uh, he's speaking now. He's setting up an argument that that they would have been very familiar with because the Jews often said, you're not like us, stay out. That was the, basically the, the way they lived their life. You're, you're, you're Gentile. You're not Jewish. So we don't want anything to do with you. Stay out. And he's going to use language here that defends that. Remember, at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's how the Jews argued. Then he makes this startling statement. It's, it's one of the most startling statements in all of the history of the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you have this story, Jews and Gentiles, which hated each other. They were estranged. In every way we can measure, they did not like each other. And so he's, he's setting up this up and saying, there's these two groups that hate each other. We have a problem. So then in verse 14, he says, for he, that is Christ, he is our peace, who has made the two one. The Jews and the Gentiles, he has made one. And it has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now, this is language that they would have all resonated with, they would have all understood. Because this barrier that he's talking about, most likely is the barrier that went around the holy place in the temple. Josephus tells us about that that there were signs on it says, Gentiles stay out at the risk of death. We've actually found them archaeologically. So the Jews constructed this barrier around their temple. So it's like us putting a barrier around our church and saying certain people groups are not allowed in. And if you come in, we're going to take your life. That's how far removed the Jews were from where the Lord wanted them to be. You're not like us? Stay out. And so what has he said? We've removed that in Christ. His purpose, verse 15, the middle of verse 15, was to create in himself one new humanity. Your translations may say one new man, one new self, one new person, 
or one new humanity. I'm using the TNIV. It uses one translation here and another one in chapter 4, but it's the same phrase. It's the only time this phrase is used in the Bible or in Ephesians. One new humanity out of the two. So he put the two together and he created one new humanity. Something the world had never seen before. Something that they had never even conceived of. Something that only God could do. And guess what? That's us. He's talking about us. Right here. This is dealing with the community. So when you go back to chapter 4, and he says, you put off, verse 20 and 21, you, this is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. These are all plural pronouns, you as a group. In English, it's kind of hard to tell if it's you singular or you plural. These are all plurals here. When you get down to verse 24, put on you as a group. Put on this new self. So the question is, what does this new humanity look like? We're becoming something. We're not static. The Lord just doesn't leave us standing still. We're moving towards some purpose. That's the way the Lord loves to work. You are all in transition, all of us, individually and collectively as a group. And your church is in transition right now. uh, Things are happening. And that's the way the Lord moves. That's how he grows us. Well, when you go all the way back to Mount Sinai, he gives us a little bit of a clue. In Mount Sinai, in Exodus 19, a very famous verse. Again, it's connected to everything that happens in the New Testament. They're now about three months outside of the uh, uh, slavery from Egypt. They have not yet met their God, and they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai. All they know is all the gods of Egypt had let them down, and the one true God, who they hadn't heard from in 400 years, decides to do these miracles and rescue them. So they saw the ten plagues, but they had not met God yet. So God lets them wander for about three months, and then they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, and God's about to introduce himself to them for the first time. Now, it's hard to overstate how significant this is in the minds of these ancient peoples because they served, they lived in a world where every, God was everywhere. Everything was a God. In Hinduism, there are 334 million gods, and you have to appease them all. Figure that one out. I love serving one. <laughs> Seems like it's a little easier. And this is the world they came in. And God all of a sudden came out of nowhere and did these ten miracles. Got their attention. Led them out of Egypt. So now three months later, he says to them, in verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. No God in the history of the world ever said that. No God. Except ours. In fact, all the other gods said the opposite. Why were you created, people, to serve me? You better make me happy. What did our God say? I didn't come to be served, but to serve. To give my life a ransom for all of you. Their God said, You don't work hard enough. Work harder. Our God said, you work pretty hard. Why don't you take rest? Every seven days, I want you to rest. In fact, while you're resting, I'll protect all of your animals and your families. You don't have to worry. Their God said, you're not good enough. Our God said, you're the crowning moment of creation. I made you in my image. 
Look out there. Everything you see, everything in the entire universe was created for you. Everything. That's how good you are. See how we differ from all the religions of the world? These are unique to Christianity. You won't find these in any other religion. The dignity of the human, you won't find in any other religion. In fact, in every other religion, you become something different than you are today. Through reincarnation or whatever the process is. But when you end up at the end of time, you're not you anymore. Christianity is the only religion where you are you and that's a good thing and you get to be you from now on. That's unique to Christianity. And we see it right here. I will make you my prized possession, treasured possession. Verse 5, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There it is. He's giving us insight into what's coming in the future. We are going to be a holy nation. Now, what does it mean to be a holy nation? We often get caught up in this, this technical language. If you were to... If I were to sit with each of you and say, what does holiness mean? I, I bet we dance around all kinds of ideas. It's hard to define this language because it's so foreign to us. But holiness simply means you're created for a different purpose. That's what it means. You have a unique purpose. Something that wasn't there before, when you turn to the Lord, you have an entirely new purpose. And what is that purpose? to reflect His glory to the world around you. Right? He said, I'll make you a kingdom of priests. There's one clue. A kingdom of priests. On behalf of whom? Well, on behalf of God, certainly. But priests are there for a reason. They mediate with someone, don't they? Isn't that what a priest does? So when he says, I will make you a kingdom of priests, it's very popular in our current literature today to to think about our own well-being. How holy are we? I don't think he intended that. I don't think any of the authors of Scripture intended that. When he said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests, all throughout the Bible, it's argued that you can't be a priest on your own behalf. That's why you need a priest. So Jesus has become your high priest, and now you are a priest. Peter says, he quotes this exact same verse in 1 Peter 2. You are kingdom of priests. Priests on behalf of whom? So, when you think of yourself as a priest before the Lord, the first thing you should do is look around and say, who am I a priest on behalf of? Well, who are you a priest on behalf of? Well, first of all, each other. But far more than that, for a lost and dying world out here. That's who. By the way, the other metaphor, priest is one, the other one is sacrifice. Romans 12, present your body as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice can't be a sacrifice that's on its own behalf. You can't sacrifice yourself for you. It doesn't work that way. So you're to become a living sacrifice. And so the first question you should ask is, on behalf of whom? So we often think of sacrifice in terms of what I give up. But if you look closely in Scripture, sacrifice is more in terms of what I do for someone else. What price do I pay for someone else? So who are you to sacrifice for, on behalf of? Well, starting with each other. But ultimately to a lost and dying world. As a community... As a church, you reflect the Lord's glory to a lost and dying world. That's ultimately what your purpose is. All right, back in Ephesians. Let's get back to Ephesians 4. We 
when you look at the context of this verse about putting on this new humanity, it's pretty interesting because you have the, that means you have the choice not to do it, by the way. I don't think the results are very pleasant if you choose not to. I think uh, you find yourself in opposition to the Lord if you do that. But I think what the Lord desires is that willingly, as a community of believers, you, you wrestle through what are we becoming. We are becoming a holy people, a holy nation. That's what we're becoming. And by the way, every generation has to wrestle with this. The whole idea of not reinventing the wheel that you hear in the corporate world, it doesn't work in the church because each of us are, are growing up into Christ. And so as a community of faith, you should wrestle with on a regular basis, I think, what are you becoming? What does it look like to become holy in the Lord as a community? We don't have time to cover them, but there are tons of examples in Ephesians. In fact, the last three chapters <clears throat> excuse me, are all devoted to that question. We're going to look at one in particular next week. Um, one of the ones that is largely misunderstood. That's Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God. Often presented as an individual exercise. And I'm going to argue that that's not, it cannot be understood that way. It's going to be talking about you as a church. But right here in the context, we just read 17 through 24. Well, if you back up in verse 11... Famous passage, Christ gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. You know this passage. It's all about what the community is becoming. Verse 14, will no longer be infants, uh, tossed about, etc., etc. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will on all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love each as, as each does its part. This is a wonderful church. It's designed to build itself up in love. You have all the tools right here, all the gifts, everything you need to be self-sustaining by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Right here. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You think about churches. Uh, Rob went with me. I, I'm in churches all over the world. And every single church has this is true about it. Because we share the Holy Spirit, each church has what it needs to build itself up in love. So, we're talking about community, and then he goes right into this. So, so therefore, cast off this bad stuff and put on the new stuff. This new stuff. Continue to move in the direction that the Lord wants you to move. But there's a little tiny clue here, again, that stands out in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. Now look in verse 25, right after the passage I read at first. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. So we got truth mentioned before and after. That's a key part. Now, for us today, where integrity and honesty uh, is a very high value in the professional world, ethics, you think about all the language that's being used all in, in every profession, whether you're a medical doctor, whether you're a counselor, whether you're a corporate leader, truth Honesty, integrity, those are all key things right now because we've gone through a, a number of years, a few decades, where our leadership has really let us down in different places. But that wasn't true back then. When you read this, it makes common sense, and you go, well, yeah, of course we should be honest with one another. But if you lived in the first century world, you know what? This would have been very new to you. 
This would have been very revolutionary to you because the world at that time operated very differently than it does today. It operated on a very strong sense of honor and shame. And that is true in most of the third world today still. Honor and shame. The way I find value is by not shaming my family. No one cared about what you thought. They only cared about what you did. We have no evidence prior to the first century that anyone was looking at the inside of a person, their motives, why they did what they did. We don't have a single piece of evidence. So when Christ walks into the world and said, you have heard it said not to commit murder, I tell you that if you hate your brother, you have already committed murder. That was earth-shattering. That was groundbreaking. We have no evidence that anyone had ever even conceived of the inside of the person as what's most important. That's not the way the world worked. It wasn't important for you to be honest with your neighbor. It was important for you to look good in front of your neighbor. It's okay to lie. That's why Paul has all the passages about boasting and all that kind of stuff. Because boasting was the way you made yourself look good in front of your neighbor. That's the way you established value in this world. That's the way you established who you were. No one cared if I had lustful thoughts about my neighbor's wife as long as I didn't act on it. And Jesus came along and said, no, that's not true. What's really important is what happens inside here. And when he made that statement, that was revolutionary. So when Paul comes along right after this and says... You will speak truth to one another. You will put off falsehood. That was a a startling statement about what this new church, this new redeemed people looks like. Honesty. For the first time, we can establish a community where I can speak truthfully to you and say I'm struggling with sin. Prior to this, it wasn't allowed. And here it is. It's allowed. This is just one example, just one. Sometimes we read these passages because we don't, uh, it's difficult to grasp the cultural setting in which they were written. They seem a little boring to us until you go back and you take a look at what was happening at the time. This is a real gift from the Lord that we can enter into relationship with people. I'm not saying you have to be honest with everyone in the church. But you can enter into safe relationships where you can say to one another, you know what, I struggle. That would have never happened in the first century. So when Paul starts talking about, I am the chief of sinners, that language, he is modeling something that he paid a tremendous price for. They mocked him. They beat him. They reviled him. It's not the way you do things. You simply don't do that. So this is one example of what it means to embrace this new humanity. Next week we're going to look at another one. Uh, has to do with spiritual warfare and how do you treat one another in spiritual warfare. Embracing this new humanity, it's radical. You won't find it anywhere else in the world today. Anywhere. You might have models that come close, but you really won't find it. Not true, genuine love. It's uh, countercultural. By that I mean the culture is always heading us toward the cliff of destruction. Always. There are no examples in history where the culture comes to the right conclusion on its own. As God gives his word, we turn away from that. 
And so God's word is what has brought in values for us today. For example, prior to 1500 B.C., we don't have an example of any nation wrestling with murder as a moral problem until the Ten Commandments were given. That was a gift from the Lord. It's unique to Christianity. Your religion is very unique. It's very unique. It's countercultural. It always exalts others. Buddhism exalts itself. The person exalts themselves. In fact, the whole idea is to escape from community. Hinduism, it's all about me. It's all about me. There's nothing in Hinduism that says I should exalt you. Christianity is opposite. It's all about exalting others. It always protects others, and it always reflects the glory of the Lord. The soldier, he asked me what's going to happen to him. I didn't have an answer. I'm not sure I would today, 20-something years later. I'm still not sure how I would answer a person face-to-face like that. I've not been faced with that situation again. Um, What I said to him was, I have no idea. All I know is, I could say with confidence that one day when we see each other in heaven, you will have experienced God's grace in a way that I could never comprehend. That's all I know. And I won't see you again until heaven. And then I look forward to hearing what you learned about God's grace. I still believe that is true. That's the best answer I could come up with. So what are you becoming? You can choose what you're going to become. That's your choice. You can frame that any way you want. As a community, a faith, as a church. That's the freedom that you have in Christ. You can answer that question and say, what do we want to be known as? One of the things I tell the younger students is that you should do the exercise now while you're young. Do what Paul did. When I get to the end of life, what do I want people to say about me? Because you only get to live it once. Some of you that are older here know what I mean. You only get to live it once. So when you get to the end of life, are you going to say, I ran, the, I ran the race, I finished the course, there's a crown laid up for me in heaven? Or are you going to say, wish I'd spent more time with my family, wish I'd served the Lord more faithfully? That's your choice. That's one of the great things about serving a gracious God is that he gives us that level of freedom. So what are you becoming as a church? Let's pray. Father, we do, uh, we lift up to you, Lord. Um, because you are the all-sovereign Lord of the universe, our thanks. Father, I am most grateful that you give us the choice to become something in you of value, of significance, of importance. Thank you that you give us the freedom to wrestle through things and to make statements and to uh, define what we want to be. Thank you for graciously and patiently walking the road with us and nudging us on and helping us and encouraging us. We love you, Lord, and we are thankful for that. I pray, Lord, for Dylan community. I pray as they go through this process um, that they're about to hear about with the pastor and the shifts and transitions that are going on. I pray that in the middle of that, you would give them a heart, continue to give them a heart to to, uh, answer those questions. What are we becoming in Jesus' name, amen. Frank has a mess, has an announcement. Come on up, Frank. Thank you, Jim, for that message. We are in transition.